Welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to be a thought-provoking journey through the scriptures. Every weekday, my friend and fellow pastor Barney Estes and I walk through the Word of God verse by verse. As always, we'd love to know your thoughts about today's episode. You can hit us up at Pierce Point Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Okay, so it looks like Luke chapter 19, and we're going to pick up at verse 28 and roll to the end of this great chapter. But we went from yesterday's podcast dealing with this amazing final line of Jesus uh, in his parable, which says, slay them in my presence, to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So you talk about a a hot to cold or cold to hot, whichever way you want to look at that. Uh, But starting at Luke 19, verse 28, what stands out to you? Well, I think, first of all, we do have to keep in mind what, as you've said, we just came out of yesterday. And I think Jesus also had in mind all of these things, when he's telling these stories, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to, to, to happen there. And he's steadfast. He's staying on his mission. He's headed that way, but there were things in the midst that he had to stop and do. So, yes. uh, and But this one, this one was uh, a prophesied piece of his triumphant part of Jerusalem. So, I'm anxious to get into it. Yeah, by by Luke's introduction, it would appear that his linking of the previous parable with the triumphal entry uh, is is dealing with Jesus's, the previous parable is dealing with Jesus's kingship. So, mm-hmm. so yesterday we talked about this idea of who was the master who needed to gain a kingdom and, and then come back to the citizens who didn't want him. And I think we have it very clearly indicated now uh, by way of Jesus's connection that that's Jesus. And he is now coming in to his kingdom. What a powerful thing. Now, if we're going to look at that that way, it would appear that he's coming into his kingdom because the idea of him going away already happened. That's just an interesting way of thinking about it. Not sure that that's a a right way of thinking about it, but what we have now is Jesus is coming in to his kingdom. So after he said these things, verse 28, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage uh, and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one uh, yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. I'm going to try that someday. And I'm going to say, go into that, (laughs) go into that car dealership, grab some keys, find the car it belongs to, bring it to me. If anybody asks you, just tell them Nate said to send it to him. The Lord has need of it. Yeah, I don't think Nate has need of it and the Lord has need of it has the same weight to it. But anyway, (laughs) so what stands out to you? I I think the, the, the first thing that really stands out to me is that uh, Jesus was steadfastly going toward Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen there, knowing that he's going to endure the cross, uh, and that and that he's 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 not backing down from this. He's he's going, and I and you know here is the other piece of this that is so important. But we read about there's a version of this story in John uh, chapter eleven that makes it very clear. That, that the Jewish rulers 
were out to get him. There was a there was a price on his head, if you will. He was kind of a wanted man. Despite all of that, he comes in, he goes into Jerusalem in the most public display that could ever be. He it couldn't have been more here I am moment. Yes. And and knowing that these guys were out to get him in any way, they were at the point now where they wanted him dead and they didn't necessarily care how that happened. Yes. So he is, uh, Luke is indicating a lot of details for us that are, that are just worth considering. Um, like the fact that he comes to the Mount called Olivet and this, this Mount of Olives, as we would, we would, uh, understand is directly East of Jerusalem and the gate through which he's going to then enter would be the Eastern gate. Le- later it's referred to as the, the golden gate or something, gold, the gold gate or something like this. So the point that I'm getting at is that uh, I believe all of these details are important to what Jesus is about to do. Okay. So, so then we have this passage of he's, he tells him to go into the village and, and get this donkey. Um, this is really an, an obscure idea in which he's, Fulfilling something prophetically, but but what are what are we dealing with? What we do know from Zechariah chapter nine is uh, is this prophetic utterance that says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is ju- uh, he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey." Mm-hmm. So we've got that, but this really interesting piece of go and borrow that donkey from somebody. <laughs> I still find yeah. fascinating. That is pretty a pretty interesting <laughs> story. Now, there are some uh, scholars and commentators that believe that this was set up, and we'll talk more about that, but I, that, that doesn't seem to be... I don't know how that could have ever happened. Jesus, the last time that Jesus had been to that city had been, as best we can tell, weeks before. So, He's not 100% certain of the exact day, the exact hour that he's going to be coming back. So they're going to leave the... So this wasn't just a colt. It was a colt and a, and a mother. So this is an unbroken donkey. The only way that he could be riding that would be with its mother there with it. So there was two there. So these have been, they've been sitting there with these donkeys tied up waiting on them for weeks? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it worked that way. So, but, but the other thing is, as you've said, this is prophetic. We know that... That when a a king uh, came for war, he came on a horse. Yes. There and when he came as, in peace, he came on a donkey. And this was exactly what Jesus was trying to portray here. He was coming in peace. Now this was as as you've said. This is uh, this is kind of noted the uh, uh, writers of or the ones who wrote out this. Uh, New American Standard Version of the Bible, they put some headings on there. This was a triumphal entry in their mind, and very rightly so. But this was very much a, uh, uh, a prophetic uh, calling that Jesus was going to. It was the most important piece of the thing that he was that he'd come to earth to do. Yes. yes. So a uh, little bit of Old Testament connection here. Of course we've got the Zechariah 9-9 passage and he's going to come riding on a colt. Um, there were animals that were designated, uh, if you will, uh, to perform sacred tasks in the Old Testament. And so there it it, it is also possible that this particular 
colt, unbroken, unridden, whatever, uh, was similar to what we see in Numbers or Deuteronomy or even in 1 Samuel 6, 7, we see another reference of it. But the idea here is that... um, the idea is that there were animals that were designated for certain services, certain things, you know, uh, sacred tasks. And it could be that this cult was known by Jesus to be there for that purpose. Others conjecture that Jesus' supernatural knowledge knows that the cult is there. There's so much weird stuff out there, right? But nonetheless, what we do see, regardless of anything, is we see Jesus say, you got to go get this. And there is a meaning. Zechariah 9.9 tells us very clearly what that meaning is and that Jesus is going to come riding in. The king comes riding in on uh, a donkey, mm-hmm. yeah. on the foal of a donkey. The, this is, there's so much symbolism here that are, that is related to prophecy. And, and uh, there's a fellow that I've been reading a little bit, F.B. Meyer. I love some of his quotes, and he he believes in his mind, and he's just a beautiful writer and he's, uh, of, of all things related to the Scripture. He believes that this is an illustration of how God requires an undivided loyalty. That is that the seed of authority that Jesus set on, this cult, is for Jesus and Jesus alone. He, 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 he also noted that Jesus may require of us one brief service of renown or notice, and if this is his plan, we should find satisfaction in it. Yes. So this 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 cult had one job, and that's to take Jesus into Jerusalem for that triumphal entry uh, into that city. So I just love that it, it does. It's not it's not necessarily a scriptural thing, but I love the way this man wrote yes, this illustration. Absolutely, I think uh, we can't rule out the idea. Jesus has done a lot of things to, um, okay, so let's just think about this for a second. He is the coming king. He is the Messiah. He has considered equality with God a thing not to be grasped. And and by that, we mean that he humbled himself to serve instead of be served. Okay, so he, he humbled himself. There are many instances throughout the New Testament where we would see Jesus possessing divine knowledge, possessing a, a knowledge of the hearts of men, of the thoughts of men, of, of certain situations like this. There's also the distinct uh, man character of Jesus, right? He's a hundred percent God, but he's also a hundred percent man. And in that, we we can we can connect the idea that Jesus would say, "Well, I have to. This is the mission I'm on, and I'm gonna I'm gonna walk through this mission. I'm gonna orchestrate this mission. I'm going to go through this." So again, this leads to commentators, as you you have recently put up, that, that some commentators would say Jesus could have orchestrated that this that this cult would be there. Now, nothing in that takes away from the beauty of what is happening. He's orchestrated a lot of things. I, I would argue that I would argue that Jesus wants to illustrate his saving grace coming to sinners, and he goes by the way of Zacchaeus, as we remember from yesterday's podcast. I think I think he orchestrates that. I don't find it okay, it is not distinctly spiritual for something to happen. Uh, willy-nilly, like uh, spontaneously. Right. We live in a culture where if it's spontaneous, people think, ooh, that's spiritual. That's crap. Yeah. That is just spontaneous. <laughs> Why don't you quit thinking that way? But so what we have to do is realize that that Jesus very well could have been part of the orchestration of this very thing. Here is what's more important. 
the meaning of the event. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so who cares if Jesus orchestrated it? Here's what happens. He just walks through. He he comes trotting through on a donkey. And everybody who is a devout Jew is thinking, who does this man think he is? Right? So regardless of his orchestration or divine, you know, knowledge of a thing or whatever it is, the truth is what Jesus is doing, he knows what he's doing. And so do they, to yeah. be quite honest. It is, it's such a, it, 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 it seems so out of, uh, out of the range of what we understand because we live in a totally different world. And we've said this many, many times. And if we read it from our world, all of these things seem strange to us. All of these things that, that Jesus has done, some of the things he said, some of the stories that he told to get deep meaning into these guys' hearts and minds seem strange to us. But if we read it from the standpoint of saying, first of all, he was a man, as you've said. He, I mean, he was God, as you said. But if we, if we only read it with our understanding and seeing the, the way that I'm sure that some of those guys saw him riding in on a donkey, Without they would have been like, wait a minute, that's supposed to be what the king of Israel does when he comes in peace. He's not the king of Israel. But then these other guys are laying their clothes in front of the path and saying, Hail blessed King. He, yeah, blessed is he. And, and that is an important connection, that it's not just his enemies that would know this thing. Uh, the people seem to understand this too. And so we're, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of this, but verse 32, so those who were sent away, sent, went away and they found it just as he had told them, right? Whether he orchestrates this or whether it's divine knowledge, just as they told him and no more is made of that. So that's fine. Verse 33, and they were untying the colt. Its odor said to them, why are you untying the colt? Well, guess what? Duh. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Uh, and they said, uh, you can go get your Lord and let's talk about yeah. this. No. So verse 35, apparently the owner says, okay. Yeah. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he was going, uh, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, it is worth noting these are his disciples, yes. the crowds of his disciples who are doing this. So what they are doing, what they are declaring, both as disciples and Jesus as the guy on the back of the donkey, is very clear. Yes. I am king. He, absolutely. And they, and they knew that. I mean, they, they knew exactly. This is, I, I, I can imagine, and there are commentators that have talked about this, that this whole thing of getting this donkey and, and the, the two, actually, it was the, it was the mother and then the, and then the cult, that, that all they had to say was, hey, you know who Jesus of Nazareth is? He's coming and yes. we need this donkey. Well, in that day, at that time, by this time, he was so well known that there, there's conjecture that says it would have been easy for someone to say, oh yeah, absolutely, yes. take it. Take it. Just bring it back, but take it. Yes. But but I but and then the idea of a of a victorious king 
coming into that city in the way that he did this, <coughs> and the devout Jews, whether they be friend or foe to Jesus, would have known, as you've said, would have known the symbolism exactly. And when they heard the people crying out, the disciples shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they would have said, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to happen until the real king of Israel comes. Mm -hmm. This isn't supposed to happen this way. So it it is intriguing that there are times when uh, New Testament writers, New Testament characters quote the Old Testament. And sometimes they'll leave out a phrase just because it's it has it has no bearing on the subject. Not that they're not that they're trying to change its meaning. Or maybe if if they are giving us the fuller meaning of a thing, they give us just the words we need. But in this instance, uh, it seems it would seem that Jesus's followers are quoting Psalm one eighteen twenty six. Here's what one eighteen twenty six says. It says, "Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord." Now, what was that blessing about? It was actually a blessing to greet uh, a pilgrim, a, a traveler that was coming into the city. But notice what they've added to Psalm one eighteen twenty six. Mm-hmm. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Ah, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So right here, not only is this a pilgrim, not only is this a traveler and he is to be welcomed, this is your king, mm-hmm. Israel. Mm-hmm. That those are those are fighting words yes. again. This has riled up the Pharisees. Yes. It has riled the very next verse 39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. <laughs> the, this, this crowd's praise, and this would have been at this point, as best we can tell, and by all the things that, that we have uh, to be able to tell, this was thousands of people. And, and these guys were getting pretty uncomfortable with the praise that was being given yes. to Jesus because they're thinking there is no way that this is going to happen this way. No, it's not going to, ha- to happen. And, and and they were uncomfortable to the point that they said, hey, you need to tell these guys to be quiet. Yes, yes. Not only not only this declaration, teacher, rebuke your disciples, that obviously, who were the ones chanting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the, the disciples of Jesus. The Pharisees know that. They tell him to rebuke your disciples. And Jesus, if we put this into kind of just a a, a very human situation that's going on right here, Jesus is being told uh, in some ways by the Pharisees, tell these guys to be quiet. We know you put them up to this. We know you're the one who has prompted this whole thing. Jesus responds in a very amazing way. In, in, in a way that really is, I don't know, it's breathtaking to me. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, he, here's the way I'm, I'm thinking through this, just as I'm trying to understand everything and how Jesus is phrasing it. His statement seems to say more than just, if men were quiet, rocks would cry out. His statement seems to be saying, even if these men didn't know who I was, if these disciples didn't know who I was, I could have walked in here and the rocks would have sang, yeah. blessed is he yeah. who comes in the name of the Lord. So you might think I'm in control of the disciples and I make them do certain things, 
The facts are on the table. I am that I am. Yes. I am king, and even the rocks will cry out. I, I do love the imagery, though. I do love the imagery that says that if we are not a people who praise him, uh, his creation will still praise him. I, I, absolutely right. That is so beautiful. We can gain some insight into this is a drama above all dramas, I, and I... <laughs> I, we can gain some insight from John chapter 12, because at, at this same time, in John chapter 12, verse 19, these, we read that these Pharisees were, were looking, they were, they were starting to get at each other's throat and say, they, they were saying to each other, and John 12, 19 says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Yes. They were, they were losing control. They were losing control, and they saw it, and they said, this has got to stop, and they couldn't stop it. Yes. They couldn't stop it. They were powerless to stop it, and they were saying amongst themselves, we've lost control of this. Yes. And with that picture, that drama, as you rightly put it, with that in our minds, are we really surprised why they killed Jesus? <laughs> are we really surprised at how angry and infuriated they were against this one? Again, if you really want to insert a component to the story that makes it hard to understand why they would kill Jesus, create hippie Jesus. Yeah. It makes no sense why they would yeah. kill Jesus. In today's world, the guy who accepts everybody's way of life and just walks around accepting everybody to the point of, uh, to the point of absurdity, that guy is never hated by anyone. Now, he doesn't have any convictions, but he doesn't, he, nobody hates that guy. The guy you hate is the guy who you think, uh, he comes from the devil. That guy's a, a religious zealot. That guy is something, whatever. You can think what you want, but Jesus has come and he has turned their world upside down and they are mad. Yeah. I mean, he has poked the bear on this not, one, right? Not, ha not, not happy. And look at that. We we see that what they've said there. We see that they have said the the uh, the uh, their version of this uh, psalm. I believe it was that they had that they were crying out. But it says that they were also they were crying out. They were remembering the many mighty works that Jesus has done. I mean, they all of the miracles he's performed. They were praising God. They were. At, I think about sometimes. Now, I want to say that sometimes our praise is mindless almost. Yes. Sometimes we don't, we praise God and we don't help people understand what the praise is about. These people said, hey, I'm praising him because he is king. He is God. Only God could do these things. And here are the things that he did. Sometimes I think our I think sometimes if we're not careful, our praise can be kind of mindless. Yes, and, and I'm excited about this point because, number one, the same is true of our prayers. Scripture tells us that we can have we can have meaningless prayers and that God is not going to hear us for our many words. He, he doesn't want, we have confused that with that God hates rote prayers or God doesn't, well, follow Jewish history and you'll find out that there is, there is no problem there. Uh, follow Christian history for the past 
uh, largely for the past 1900 years, and you have a lot of repetitious or rote prayers. God doesn't hate that. God does not like a thing that has no meaning behind it. God does not like a thing that is just benign, that, that is powerless, if you will. With our praise, this is one of my big contentions with the modern worship movement. Now, things are changing, and I want to point that out in just a second, but things are changing in this respect. Um, singing songs where what we repeat all the time are things like, I will worship, I will worship, I will worship, I will worship. Um, the, the foreigner who comes into our midst, uh, you, you might as well be the clanging symbol of the guy who mm. speaks in tongues but has no interpreter. I will worship, I will worship, I will worship. The person comes in and says, Why? Why will you worship? I don't even know why, which is to your point, right? Your, your point is there has to be there has to be substance behind this. And what's the substance? He's the king. Look at what he's done. Yeah. Uh, peace has come to heaven and earth because of this King Jesus. So there's substance behind this. And people people want to want to give all kinds of excuses, you know. But, well, people can't track with wordy songs or people don't track with this or that. No, no. The culture has been lulled into meaninglessness, right? We need to get ourselves back on this place where we understand that there's there are rich truths that we need to declare. And in declaring that, we find ourselves in genuine worship, exalting God and being reminded of his faithfulness. I, I just said that there's a change happening in worship. You know, there I used to have these discussions with worship leaders and they would say things like, you know, we don't need this kind of modern hymn movement because people don't track with all these words. It's too cumbersome. People aren't following through with it. Look at the worship music that you're finding coming out, right. even from the elevations and from the and from the hill songs and all these things. Uh, track with me again how many words they're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're walking away from this repetitious nonsense that happens because even worship leaders, even the church, is discovering we're not saying anything. Mm-hmm. I will worship. How about we do it? How do we do that? You're the great king of the universe. You're the God of heaven. You're the, you're the maker of heaven and earth. How about we declare who he is? Mm-hmm. And there's a change happening, so it's powerful. It, a, a man once said, well said, when anyone who says praise the Lord should be a, able to answer this question, praise him for what? That's good. It, it, and I think we should know why we're praising God. Yes. If we don't, well... Maybe we need to get a little closer to God, and but there is, I, I'm completely with you. I think there's a change. And look at the people that are, that are singing songs that are drawing people's hearts to God. I mean, look, look at the songs that they're singing. And I, it, it, there's, there are waves, there are cycles, ebbs and flows in worship sure. music. And you, you are completely, uh, uh, aware of all that you're into that world so so much and and we're at a to a great degree but you see that that as it kind of ebbs and flows it there are people that say i i want to understand what this praise thing is about is it just saying jesus 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 a hundred times maybe it is i don't know 
But maybe it's more than that. Maybe yes. it's saying, doing what these people were doing. Absolutely. Praise him for what he has done and who he is. Yes. So we jump back into this and the Pharisees are, are telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to shut them up, right? And verse 40 says, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Now, we cannot miss how heartbroken Jesus is over this city that has rejected him, this city that will ultimately reject him. But he wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, now what day are we talking about? This day. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemy will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus had come. The king had come. You missed it. We're, what do we see in this last section? We actually see what we read and what we learned in our podcast from yesterday. He will t- take them out and say, slay them before me. Yes. Slay them before me. We're seeing the exact same thing. Jesus has come. Their visitation has been upon them, and they did not or could not even see it now that it was there. Yeah. They could not recognize who he was. They did not. Some of them did and to- chose to reject him instead of accept him. And 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 these these tears, when it says he wept, this wasn't just tears running down his face. There are there are many things in the original language that lead us lead the to believe that this was a sobbing crying that he that he did over this city. And and he wasn't there are some that that believed that he was sobbing over the fate that he was going to just just not so his words don't don't even yes. don't even indicate that this was he saw something that the people around him didn't see that that this coming destruction of this city had been prophesied and it and it wasn't too long too many uh, years later that everything he said here happened and it happened exactly as he said it would yes so uh here's just a a bit of a geeky moment to drop into the language of verse 42 jesus is starting off uh, we have to understand that he wept over jerusalem okay so we, we have the emotional state of jesus his heart is broken over over these people and their rejection. But here's what's really interesting. In the Greek, it, it says, if you had known in this day, even you, that next you, that second you, okay, is really an interesting thing. It's called a second class condition. And that is to say, this is really interesting. It is to say that what Jesus said there wasn't finished. It shows, and this is hard for us to understand, but people who understand Greek actually know these things. That's why they comment about it. That's why they share with us this information. It would be like hearing Jesus say, as he's, as he's weeping, as he is brokenhearted, if you had known in this day, even you, and he chokes up, yeah. and he can't, 
He can't express that he is hurt because of their rejection. And then he finally, finally comes back and says, the things which make for peace. If you had only known the things which make for peace, even you, right? You don't know this. So it's an amazing thing. I believe the I believe the uh, the linguistic phrase is apodosis, but I'll have to Google that later. But I have to look that up later. But the idea here is that Jesus is breaking up as he's saying this. If you had known in this day, even you, and he's choking up on his emotion and says the things which make for peace. If you had known the things which make for peace, but you don't right? Mm-hmm. You, you reject mm-hmm. them, right? But now they have been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. This is something Jesus did not want. Mm. This is something Jesus did not want. If we rewind to the Old Testament, we remember the story of Israel going wayward against God. Jeremiah pleading with the people over and over and over, calling them to walk purely before God, and they wouldn't do it. He did not want to send them into exile. He does, ultimately. He will. He will judge because he's faithful, because he's good, because he's just. But make no mistake, he wants to be compassionate, but they wouldn't listen. And I I love the fact that in the Greek language, you can actually get to the emotion of Jesus. We have a problem in in our ways of interpreting things that our English just becomes bland, right? And we read it and we go, that sentence didn't quite make any sense. There's probably more to it if it doesn't make sense. There's a deep, many times, a deeper, richer meaning. And as you've said, this this was just a cry of a a desire to to save them, to deliver them. That was just that that they wouldn't have. It was, he wanted to deliver them not only from the the physical de- de- destruction that was coming very soon, but the spiritual de- destruction more than that. I- is it any wonder that he would have taken every opportunity that he could for everyone that came to him? Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree quickly. Yes. I'm going to your house today. Yes. He took every opportunity for those that would receive him, he would take them in. He yes. did that over and over and over again. But unfortunately, the vast majority did not receive him. You know, over the past couple of podcasts, we've had some in-depth eschatological or or uh, end times conversations. We're, we're asking the question, what does the end of all things bring? What What is this about? What Where is this in the grand scheme of human history? It is really important to remember that that parable we read yesterday, that parable of, of, of the king that is, that is uh, going to come back and he's going to cast out those citizens who didn't want him, he's going to have them slaughtered in front of him. Uh, that coming again after his kingship is right here. It's actually in Jesus's life. So we're not seeing a, we're not seeing a second coming conversation here. We're seeing him coming into his own in this situation, and the rejection of those who would reject him is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the days are coming when the enemy will throw up a barricade against you. Uh, Luke's writers 
understood what had happened. Absolutely. 8070 had occurred. This was this was really brutal. Now when he goes on and says you've been um, and and surrounded you and hemmed you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. This was an this was an utter destruction that the Romans mm-hmm. had brought upon them, right? That yes. this was pretty brutal and this came true in in their day. Yes. So. This was a judgment that was pronounced, and Jesus found no joy in having to say, I, I could have kept you from this. Yes. But you wouldn't. You wouldn't receive me. You wouldn't you wouldn't accept me. Exactly. I could have kept this from happening to you. This this maybe even physical, but certainly spiritual judgment of God. He found no joy no, in that. No. And this spiritual judgment had been been proclaimed for a long time. 2 Samuel 17, 13, just for your study time. Uh, 2 Samuel 17, 13. We've got Micah chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, we also have Psalm 137, verse 7. All of these were prophetic utterances talking about no stone being left on another, right? This is going to be a, a, a destruction like you don't really understand. Josephus talked about this, right? Yes. Uh, just on and on and on. This is, this, is all, uh, this is all understood by those familiar with Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70. Because uh, why? Because the king had come. Yeah. King came into their midst and they rejected him. It was just overwhelming, Nathan. And I, as I read it, and as you just read more and more of it, and you see this, and it, like you you quoted in verse forty two, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, the name of the city meant city of peace. Jerusalem yes. was the city of peace. And he said, "You don't, you you don't know the things that make for peace." Yes. Well, you know, let's go, let's go even further, right? And and these are the little connections. A- anybody notice back in verse thirty-eight that he says, "Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord." And then all of a sudden, we have this echo of Luke two, but it's changed. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In Luke two, it says, "Peace." on earth and glory in the highest. But what do we have? What what has Jesus come to? He's come to Jerusalem. And guess what's going to happen in Revelation? A new Jerusalem, heaven, right? Come down. Peace in heaven. There was to be peace in God's kingdom in Jerusalem. That is that that's heaven on earth. That's where God dwells. It's all temple language. So all of these things are being said in unique ways to kind of elude to the realities of what's happening here, right? We've got peace in heaven going on. This is Jerusalem language. This is very important. Uh, Glory to God, Luke 2 says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth. This is peace in heaven. Yes. Right? Jerusalem. If we ever wanted to actually prove that God's word stands and it says what it says and what it says will come to pass. We can go, and this is a, hor- this is a horrible account of what, the physical account that Jesus talked about is, ho- is horrible. You can read this in the books of Josephus. I'm going to take just a second. Let me just read to you what jo- Josephus, a Jewish historian living in the day of Jesus, wrote about what happened 
when Jerusalem was taken over in AD 70, he said all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged, the children also, and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, swelled with the famine, fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys below. When Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven, called to witness, called God to witness, to witness that this was not his doing. Yes. Uh, in Wars of the Jews, uh, Josephus goes on and he says this. He says, Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any, had there remained any such work to be done. Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest uh, of the greatest eminency. That is, uh, and he lists these particular people, and then it says, and so much of the wall as enclosed the city on the west side. The, the, the only thing left was to reflect some sort of Roman occupation and idea. But they ran out of people to kill, so Caesar says, just destroy it all. Yeah. We have no idea how serious Jesus was in this judgment. Mm -hmm. This was this had come. Yes. And it was and it was brutal yeah. to these people. They thought they hung him on a cross in it in just a few short chapters. They think we hung him on a cross, we're done with this rabble rouser, we're done with this troublemaker. <laughs> no, no. You've killed the very one you have declared to the heavens. We don't want you as our as our king. We don't want you as our leader. And they crucify him. What what a huge, huge, sad mistake that happens here. So verse 45 through 48 is how we wrap all of this up. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And when he, uh, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Mm -hmm. this, was a, this was a situation where Jesus was... Had, Seemingly, it was he. This was somewhat of the final straw. This was very short days before his death, and uh, he he's, says that they have taken taken the house of God and made it a, a, a robber's den. The actions that they were doing, it uh, uh, the his purpose was not only to drive out those that sold. But those that bought as well. Yes. And they were, and you know the story. You can read that that these guys were marking up the cost of the sacrifices, and they were having so they were actually auctioning off 
these animals in in the the Gentile the court of the Gentiles where where he, he wanted the uh, uh, a house of prayer for all nations so Gentiles were allowed into that outer court yes. they couldn't even go in there and pray because there was it was like an auction block for these these animals yes. this was a desecration of his house yes. We see it in, in another gospel account that my house will be a house of prayer. One is one eliminates that, but it's still my house is supposed to be um, is supposed to be dedicated for God, right? And and it is been made into a den of robbers. This this prevention of people being able to even purchase the sacrifices that were necessary. Uh, or, or being hindered in some way, not only, this is a real important idea, not only were the Jews not willing to listen and enter, but they were preventing others from doing so as well. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is insane for these people to be so against their master, their king, that they don't want him to rule and reign over them. Right um, now, Luke does seem to change gears. It would it would seem that all of a sudden he kind of downplays this whole idea of turning the tables in the temple because verse forty seven says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. But make no mistake, make no mistake, we don't get to read that as well. All this settled down, and he just started back up teaching in the temple. That very verse tells us they were trying to destroy him. Yeah. They hated him deeply. But what Jesus is doing after he makes this great show in the, in, the, uh, in the court of the Gentiles, after he makes this great show, he goes on and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he continues to teach them, continues mm-hmm. to teach them, continues to teach them. And the Jews are realizing um, this whole thing is slipping further and further yes. out of their control. Yeah. yeah, and he's about to do the ultimate final act, yes. which would uh, they would see as victory, but it ends up being in their defeat. Absolutely. Well, that's it for today, guys. And if you would, please like and share this podcast with your friends. And finally, remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work.